Um, so open up your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter 6. Uh, well, as I was thinking about this lesson, this passage tonight, um, I couldn't shake the suspicion that in it, uh, Mark is not just telling you a few episodes about 2,000 years ago and things that Jesus did. He's not just talking about things that Jesus did. He's, he's talking about things that Jesus does. And, and he's talking about the Savior that you stand before even tonight, this evening, in, in your life, the, the Savior that, that knows you and the Savior that deals with you. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus does all the time. That, that's what we're going to see tonight. And, 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 and I almost want to, to challenge you to, to kind of be nervous. This entire, this entire uh, fall, really, it's just been one episode after another, seeing Jesus marveling, being shaken. This is not the Jesus that I'm used to, maybe, for some of you. This is, this is not the Jesus of the, the flannel graph, the friendly, kind Jesus. This is a, a Jesus who is God and who I need to bow and worship before. And, and I want to ask you tonight, are, are you prepared to see the Jesus that is like this, who knows you and deals with you? He is an all-powerful God and yet all-compassionate, and he acts in all power and in wisdom in your life. Are you prepared to know about him? Because that's what this passage talks about. Um, we're going to see two episodes in Mark 6, and they're both tied together. They're both tied together. It'll be very obvious at the end how they are tied together. But they're, they're two episodes that show off Christ's glory, particularly Christ's control and Christ's compassion. See if you can identify all of the ways Christ is in control and Christ is showing compassion in our passage. And, and in, this, in these two passages, I just want to present to you three ways Christ knows and deals with you. Three ways that Christ knows and deals with you. Not just back then to his disciples, but with you in your life today. How Christ acts. This isn't about what happened. This is about what happens. So, Mark chapter 6. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna read a little bit, and then we're going to stop, and I'm going to talk really quick. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Uh, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So we see here Jesus uh, is first um, greeting the disciples who are returning from a trip a trip that he sent them on, and he is, he is now telling them to come away and rest for a while. And, and we can speculate that they were probably pretty tired. When you've ministered really hard for a long time, especially like they had, they would be very tired. But also, we need to remember that the context of Mark is very intentional here, and there's something shifting in Jesus' ministry. As Andrew pointed out uh, last week, Jesus is leaving he is removing himself 
from the crowds, from the people, from Israel that's rejecting him. This is, this is, this is Jesus leaving judgment. He is judging Israel by leaving. And, and if you were also to look at the, the surrounding context to these two uh, incredible miracles, you also see that news about Jesus is spreading. Jesus is removing himself and news about him is spreading. And a matter of fact, there are two places where people are so excited to see Jesus, they are, they are racing each other to get to him first in the surrounding context. So Jesus is really popular, but Jesus isn't impressed with the enthusiasm that's surrounding him, and he is leaving. He wants to get away by himself with his disciples so that, as it will tell us in chapter 8, verse 27, he can explain who he is and why he has come. That's what Jesus is after. And, and so we see, you know, I, I feel like I've seen, a, a, I've heard a dozen messages from this passage about how we need breaks and we need a refreshment and time of reprieve in our life. But I really wonder as I'm reading this, um, this, this concept of come away by yourself and rest for a while if there's not more uh, in mind there, right? And when Jesus is saying this to his disciples, yes, he is thinking about the idea that the Lord gives his beloved sleep and rest. But Jesus also wants them to get away from the crowds so that they can rest and focus on him. And so you need to remember that Jesus is very purposeful, even in recreation time, right? He has purposes. And so, so maybe some, sometimes this is a good thing for you to remember as you've got a Christmas break coming up. Sometimes Jesus' will for your life in a Christmas break might not be to totally just relax and do nothing, but maybe an opportunity specially given to you to focus on Jesus. That's how Jesus takes vacations. He focuses on himself. Um, so as we continue, it, it gets a little bit more fascinating. That was just a freebie. Uh, it gets a little bit more fascinating. Verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran, there's that word ran, um, there on foot, from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So, so Jesus and his disciples get in a boat by Capernaum, which is in, in the northern side of Galilee, and they take this boat a little bit to the east where there's this kind of this, this more mountain shore, more deserted shore, and, and, and the people see the boat leaving, and they like, I don't know if they like track it, through the stars or something. Okay, they're going that way. Everybody run. Let's go quick. They, they figure out where Jesus is going and they run to get there first. They beat him there. And it's really interesting when you actually realize the geography here. Um, this would be about a four-mile boat trip. But if you go by land, it's an eight-mile walk. So, I mean, boats are a little bit easier, a little bit, a little bit quicker in some ways. But these people were booking. That's what that means. They were racing, running. And as they were running to see Jesus, to try to meet him, they're also telling other people, hey, Jesus is going over there. We saw his boat going this way. And so there's this big crowd, uh, 5,000 men, in fact, a big crowd of people that meet Jesus on the shore. And, and what's most fascinating is in verse 34. Look at this. He's trying to get away from these people so he can spend time with his disciples. You ever want to get away from people so you can spend time with your close, intimate friends, and then you see that they're there? Oh, shoot, those people are there. I just want to spend time with these people. What do you say in your mind? Just, just remember that. What, what does Jesus do in his mind in verse 34? And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
compassion. It, it means literally to be moved in your guts, which is how good Hebrews talked about getting emotional. I'm getting some um, gut movement here. Um, that's uh, never mind. It was a joke. Uh, why is Jesus compassionate? He's compassionate because they are sheep without a shepherd, which is Old Testament language for the the, the leaders are rotten. The leaders are just letting them wander around. They are are sheep without a shepherd, just in chaos. And and this angers God very much. If you read in the Bible, you see it everywhere. It's an indictment against bad leaders. And and notice why he's compassionate. Um, They need shepherds who will teach them. This is what Jesus' compassion leads him to do. It leads him to teach. Um, That's their primary Need and and so I know that, that some of you may oftentimes maybe go to another church, another uh, youth group, maybe perhaps anything like that. Any, any anywhere you go, you just got to remember how the Bible defines shepherding or pastoral care is someone whose primary ministry is teaching. This is how you judge. This is how you judge a group. Do, are they teaching me God's word? Am I growing? Um, that is what the Bible says as the primary shepherding duty. And, and I think there's a great application of encouragement here, even for you this very moment, because this is fascinating to me. These crowds, as we know from John 6, 2, they're not coming to Jesus for the right reasons. They're coming to Jesus because they saw these great signs and they're very excited about Jesus and they want to see more signs and more wonders. They're not coming for the right reasons. And yet Jesus has compassion on them. Uh, matter of fact, he, the, the, the unflattering picture is, 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 is amazing. His compassion, uh, he, he has compassion on them, in fact, because they come to him with wrong motives. They're coming to me with self-centered motives, and that leads me to have compassion on them. Do you have any friends in your life that, that, that attach themselves to you for, for silly reasons, and you're kind of annoyed by that? Look at what Jesus does. Hey, you're coming to me for the wrong motives, and I have compassion on you for that very reason. He, he teaches them. He, he doesn't feed them first. He teaches them. And and, and this is a good application for you tonight. Do you realize that Jesus may be showing compassion to you this very night by letting you open up his word and read it? Maybe you came here because you wanted to hang out with friends. Maybe you came, out, came here because you, I don't know, enjoy the snack time. Julia does a great time. I don't know why you came here, but you have been under God's compassion. And Jesus wants you to hear his word even tonight. Uh, that's, that's the first point. He, he knows your need. I don't know if I said that. He knows your need. Point number one. He knows your need. Um, the second way we see um, Christ's knowledge, not only he knows your need, he knows your inability. He knows your need, point number one. He knows your inability, point number two. So for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to kind of summarize this. And you guys are familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, so I can do this. Actually, if you were to name it something, feeding of the 5,000 may not be fully accurate, even though that is how Mark describes it in verse 44. Uh, the those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, but we know because of Matthew 14 that that's just including men, not women and children. So maybe the number could have been closer to the feeding of the 
10,000 or the, the 15,000, or if each, if each couple brought two kids, the 20,000. So just think about that. The feeding of the 20,000 doesn't sound as cool, but that's what we're going to go with. The feeding of the 20,000. And another little interesting fact about this, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. What do you think that means? What, what do you think is the significance of that? Anybody? Any ideas? The only miracle besides the resurrection. Why? It must tell you something incredible, something significant about his identity. This is someone who feeds people out of nothing. Who who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Exodus. It sounds like the Lord giving manna to his people. This is Jesus. This is a great picture of Jesus as Yahweh God himself. Um, And that is why each gospel makes such a deal out of it. Um, Apparently, also, Jesus' teaching was so filling and exciting and entertaining that people were forgetting about their food. Um, And so, of course, uh, everybody's sitting there, it gets late in the day, and and Jesus' disciples come up to him with what I would describe as a pretty good um, compassionate plan. Hey, Jesus, the people are probably getting hungry. Why don't you send them to the towns? And then they can buy food for themselves. We're thinking ahead for them. This is compassion. It sounds like a really good plan. Matter of fact, that's what I would do. If I was on a youth trip with you guys, I'd be like, you guys, we're just going to stop at McDonald's and you can buy your own food. That's what I would do. It's a pretty good plan. But Jesus says to them, no, 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 you do it. You, you do it. And so they bring uh, a poor boy's lunch to him, and he turns that into a feast. And so, pretty remarkable. And one, one last little summary point about this story. The, the, the narrative is really organized and oriented around Jesus teaching his disciples. This is not a miracle that he is performing for the people as much as it is a miracle for the disciples. The disciples show up in verse 30, verse 35, verse 36, verse 37, verse 38, verse 40. Uh, When he gives it to the disciples, verse 43, when the disciples pick up 12 baskets full. This is really a teaching and a sign for the disciples to see, and wow, this guy reminds me of somebody else that I know. Oh yeah, Exodus. This this is who Jesus reminds me of. So what, what is Jesus doing? And, and what is it, what, how is it indicative of what Jesus does and who he is even in your life? He may not, he may not feed you out of nothing. You know, you, know, you bring him a, a bag full of ramen noodles and he turns it into a Thanksgiving dinner. He probably won't do that. But I think this passage does say something else about what he does. In verse 37, for example, verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, when they come to him with their pretty good compassion plan, um, you Give them something to eat. Notice it's, well, in, in the original, the, the you is emphatic. It's, it's you, you yourself. And, and Jesus puts the, the responsibility directly on the shoulders of his disciples. He says, you can do it. Now, this seems, uh, to me at least, a little bit cruel. They came to him with his great compassion plan to feed the hungry. And Jesus just says, you do it. That, that seems a little bit cruel. How, how can I, Jesus? I, I, I can't feed this many people. Um, and and I, think, I think there's a lesson to be learned here about Jesus. Jesus often tests you because he knows 
you can't handle the situation. Sometimes Jesus sends things your way that are too difficult for you because he knows that you are unable. You have inability to do them. And he wants you to know that you have inability. Do you, do you know of any commands in, in God's word that are impossible for you? Sometimes Jesus sends you things to do that are impossible for you to do so that you must rely on his strength through the power of his spirit. Sometimes Jesus tells you to do things, gives you commands precisely because he knows you need to know how very weak and how very small you are. And that brings up an interesting question about Jesus tempting versus testing. And, and maybe you're familiar, if you keep your finger in Mark and turn over to James really quick, James 1 talks about tempting. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God doesn't tempt people, and then it says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So um, Jesus never tempts anybody. He tests. There's, there's a difference. Tempting is trying to make you fall. Testing is is revealing yourself to you and exposing you. To, to test means to kind of try by fire to show the weaknesses of something or the strengths of something. And sometimes Jesus sends tests your way because he wants you to see how very flimsy you are. Or perhaps he wants you to see that, wow, I've actually made progress in the Christian life. Sometimes he tests you that way. Um, once again, I, just by way of application, Jesus is, is tempting his or testing his disciples uh, because he wants them to know their weakness, their inability. And matter of fact, I, I love it because they quickly pick up on this in verse 37, back in, in Mark six thirty-seven, the ver the second half of that verse. And they said, um, John pulls out that this is Philip. Uh, they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And actually, uh, the guy who said this is actually being really cheap. Uh, this wouldn't even come close to feeding all of the people there, 200 denarii. But it, actually, it, it would actually be more than any amount of money they'd have. It would be maybe about, uh, about half, a, half a year's wages, not money that they would have just kind of floating around but they, they they kind of are a little sarcastic we don't even have nearly enough to feed half of this crowd what are you talking about and then jesus of course as you know sends them out to count and we we know from john 6 9 that this isn't just jesus telling them to go search among their own things for food it's him saying go out to the crowd say hey, does anybody have any food and that's what they do and they find this little boy emphasis on the little who has five loaves of bread which are barley loaves, which are really a poor man's food, and two fish, which are, are used because the, the loaves are so dry that you need the fish to kind of, kind of you know, juice them up a little bit and you know, make them a little bit more interesting. And, and so it, it should be noted, uh, this is a little boy's lunch, not a, a grown man's supper. They need a supper, and all they have right now is a lunch. You know the difference between a lunch and a supper? It is very different. The, the supper was the big meal. 
it, it seems it seems it seems to me like Jesus is calling sometimes he calls you to do things precisely because they are hard because he wants you to show how very little you are by yourself you're like this little boy with this little lunch pack you know that's all that's all you are um, and so then in verse 40 um, they sit down in groups of course all the better to count them by and to feed them. And then in verse 42, you see they are all given. Jesus blesses the food. We're not really told how it was divided, but it just keeps producing. And in verse 42, we see people are satisfied. And that is a word that speaks of eating so much that you no longer want to look at food. You guys ever have that experience? Like at Thanksgiving, I don't even want to look at food anymore. This little boy's lunch turned into a big enough meal for 20,000 people, that everybody is stuffed, stuffed full. And there's one last important detail that Mark brings up there in verse 44, and I love this, or verse 43. Um, And he mentions that the disciples gather the fragments up, and there are 12 baskets full. Now, why do you think think there are 12 baskets full? How many disciples were there? 12 12 disciples. So each of them has one basket, and they all have enough for each of them to have a full basket left over. And I think Jesus is trying to tell his disciples and you something very precise. You will always have what you need to do what I call you to do if I am with you. You will always have more than enough for what you need. The resources you have in me are sufficient to do anything that I call you to do. If I call you to do something, believe that I will give you the power and the strength through the Holy Spirit, through other believers in your life to do it. It's all a matter of whether you go after it, whether you seek God's strength in his spirit to do something. And a little aside here about Jesus's power that I find incredible and inspiring and exciting. Um, Not only is Jesus's power great enough to feed 20,000 people plus 13, it's also precise enough to feed all of those people plus have just enough to fill 12 baskets. That is precision power. Jesus knew exactly who was there, exactly how much they would eat, and exactly how much to make so that there would be 12 baskets left over. That is power. That is control. That is sovereignty. That is your Savior that you stand before today. Someone who intentionally can give just what you need. So, um, he knows your need, point number one. He knows your inability, point number two. And finally, he knows your blindness. He knows your need. He knows your inability. He knows your blindness. This won't make much sense until maybe the very end, but, but stick with me here. Um, it takes Mark the entire narrative to kind of explain here. I mean, the entire narrative being Uh, seven verses. It takes Mark seven verses to really explain why in verse 45, Jesus immediately makes his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, he dismisses the crowd. Now, John makes clear in this situation that it was because the people wanted to make Jesus king. I mean, think about it. Here we have this Herod Antipas, who is just really a tyrant. Matter of fact, This Herod just 
killed John the Baptist, the greatest prophet we've ever seen. He has complete disregard for God. But here we have a new prophet who has regard for God, and he has the ability to just produce food out of nowhere. We are going to make him king. Now, Mark doesn't really pull that off. He doesn't really say that. But he, he leaves out the explanation for why he does that till the very end, and, and that will become apparent. Um, it seems to me that Jesus didn't like the enthusiasm that the crowds were showing him. They, he didn't like this idea like, hey, we want to make you king. You're becoming very popular. Now, in, in our minds, this is backwards. Hey, Jesus is becoming popular. People are liking Jesus. Isn't this what we want? We want people to just, you know, just say Jesus, you know, just, just, just say his name and you're good. You're in. Just come join our church and that's what we want. But that's not what Jesus wants at all. He wants an attitude of the heart from these people that follow him. And the response that these people are giving him is not what he wants. As a matter of fact, as Mark suggests, this enthusiasm for Jesus, this excitement about bread, is actually a reflection of something very different. It is a reflection of hardness of heart. How in the world... How in the world could you have a hard heart towards Jesus after being fed to the fill by him? Well, that's what happens. And a matter of fact, this enthusiasm that the crowd shows um, is starting to probably infect Jesus' disciples as well. They're getting swept up in this, this Jesus excitement, and Jesus intentionally pulls them away because their eyes are getting blinded by the, the fanfare, by the enthusiasm, by the excitement, whatever you want to call it. And so quickly, to, to summarize this, this is, as your heading says, Jesus walking on water perhaps one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Jesus compels, that's a very strong term in verse 45, his disciples to go back to Capernaum by boat to get away from the people. And Jesus, we also see, has this, a surprising amount of authority because he's able to dismiss the crowds who want to make him king. Next. And then he is able to escape to a nearby mountain to pray. And while he is praying, his disciples are having a hard time crossing back over that, you know, four miles. Remember the wind was probably kind of against them. That's the only way we could kind of explain how the crowds beat them there. But now the, the wind, interestingly enough, has shifted directions. And now the disciples are struggling to go this way. Just everywhere we go, the wind is against us. That's what they're saying, probably. Um, and, and, and we see Jesus comes out to them, walking on the water and joins them. And then the narrative tells us something very surprising. That actually ties both of these two narratives together. It says in verse 51, look it with me, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Just like the people, they had hard hearts. They didn't understand the significance. They didn't see like, oh, this is familiar. I think I know someone else who have, has done this. No, they're just thinking about themselves, their belly. Like, hey, let's just keep Jesus around. This is a much better evangelistic uh, ministry than what we were doing a, a couple days ago when we were wandering around, you know, trying to proclaim the gospel to the kingdom. Let's just, let's just have Jesus perform a couple miracles, maybe go to Jerusalem, maybe go to Rome. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking outside of my, my head here right now. And we could get a massive following for Jesus. But this is actually a reflection of hardness of heart. And really what it is, is it's just a belly-first mentality in 
life. Now, why is this a lesson about Jesus knowing your blindness? Well, let's look at a few things really quick here. Verse 46. Verse 46. uh, After he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Uh, Once again, we see uh, Jesus retreat from the crowds to pray. He, he seems to always be doing this. If you look back in chapter 1, he, he gets away. He gets up early in the morning to pray again. Why does he need prayer? Well, maybe it is because he is actually experiencing temptation. These crowds are, are beckoning him to become their king. Hey, here I have an opportunity to have the crown, so to speak, without the cross. That sounds pretty good. And, and, and Jesus, in his human nature, requires prayer as well just like you do and so he is seeking prayer for strength perhaps that perhaps it was that he was concerned for the spiritual condition of his disciples heart we see in luke twenty-two thirty-two that jesus often prays for the disciples that 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 satan has asked to sift peter but jesus has prayed for him that he might not fail I'm inclined to think of it more as him praying for the disciples because as we see in the next verse, 48, he is watching them, watching them from far away, maybe supernatural vision here. They are the constant objects of his focus throughout this night. I am inclined to think that Jesus is praying for them because he knows their blindness. He knows their hardness of heart. He knows their stomach-first mentality that they are struggling with. And by the way, by, by just a side example and application, if Jesus, the Son of God, requires prayer in his earthly life, how much more do you require prayer? How much more, if the disciples require his prayer, how much more do you require his prayer? And how much more do you require prayer? In verse verse 48, we see something very curious. He saw that they were making headway painfully. Or, or you, could, you, could, you could translate that word, not painfully, but tortuously. They, this, was, this was just a nightmare of a situation for them. Um, and to explain a little bit, like I said, this is only like a two-hour trip by boat. It was only, it's only four miles across where they're trying to go. And we know from the, the, the timing markers that Mark includes that this trip is taking around nine hours. Now, when I was a kid growing up in Minnesota, my, my family and I used to do this thing where we'd go to this lake and, and we'd get these floaties out and we'd kind of just drift across the lake and kind of hope for wind, you know, to, to bring us the right way. But it just took forever. And it was, it was terrible. But that, that, just, that was just like, man, to be just a slave of the wind is just a terrible experience. But, but think about these disciples. They're experienced fishermen and it says they're rowing hard and they are slaving away for all night. By, because the next marker of time we see there in verse 48 is the fourth watch of the night. That is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, which is the darkest time 
of night. Also, I will add from my security experience, it's a terrible time to be awake. Why would any of you stay up that late? Um, uh, John also gives us a detail. John 6.19 says that they are about three to four miles off land, which if it takes about four miles to cross would suggest that they're also off course, maybe in the middle of the lake a little bit more. Um, Matthew 14 talks about waves beating against the boat. John 6.18 talks about this wind that, that Mark is also including, but talks about it like a wrathful wind. And once again, we see this curious statement that Jesus saw them through it all. As a matter of fact, it seems to suggest that when they were going out, it was evening time, and Jesus saw them out there. And Jesus was watching them the entire night as they were perilously trying to fight against these wind, this wind and this wave and all of these things. And he waits, right? He, he waits for nine grueling hours. He, he, he lets them struggle out there for nine or so hours. Now, once again, at first blush, like the feeding of the 5,000, this seems a little bit cruel, a little cruel to me. Like, you're just going to let them suffer out there? I mean, you're, you're, you're watching your disciples Uh, be tortured by the wind and the waves and you who can calm the wind and the waves in in a second just let them struggle out there for no reason apparently by the way this this kind of corrects any notion that this feeding of the 5,000 parable is about like prosperity gospel kind of things because look at this Jesus lets his disciples suffer for a long time in fact he watches them he is praying for them and perhaps Mark wants us to see here something and understand something about Jesus not just about what he did but what he does he is not an instant fix to your problems he's not just here to fill up your bellies with food he's here for more than that the more important issue for Jesus than solving all the problems of your life is praying you through all the problems of your life letting you experience the problems of your life and letting you experience his faithfulness throughout all those problems like it says in Hebrews 7 725 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, to make prayer on their behalf. This is what Jesus is always doing. a matter of fact, if you are going through something hard right now, if you're not going through something hard right now, he is still right now praying you through it if you are his disciple and, and maybe you, like the disciples, are starting to kind of get pulled away by the world and by the enticements of the world, or maybe by just like an enthusiasm from Jesus that is not produced from faith or worship or joy or trust, but just a self-centered kind of faith in Jesus. And Jesus is praying you through that as well. He is praying for you while you're in a storm so that your heart may be purified, so that your heart might be softened. And notice, it's not just the storms of life that do that to you. It's who's with you in the storms of life that will change your heart, who is praying for you. Because we notice in the rest, verse 48, 
at the fourth watch of the night, that's between three and six in the morning, he comes to them walking on the water. Now, just for any, any of you that are perhaps at all um, tempted to follow the liberals here and think like, oh, maybe Jesus was just walking along the shore. Maybe Jesus was just kind of wading through the shallow weeds. Just remember, they were three to four miles out in the water. Also, just remember, these were experienced fishermen who probably knew where they were in the middle of the water. And just remember in Matthew 14 that Peter tries to get out of the boat to you know wade through those little weeds and that little shallow water with Jesus, and he goes right down into the water. Just remember those little facts and that will kind of clear some things up for you Um, and we also see this walking on the water is a statement of the majesty and glory of the god of the old testament who tramples the waves of the sea according to job who who makes his way through the sea according to psalm 77 19 and who makes his way in the sea according to isaiah 43 this is a picture of the god of glory this is to cause the disciples whose heart have been distracted by the feeding of the 5,000 to look, to see, and to say, wow, this is no ordinary man. This is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you notice something else really curious here that I kind of find a little bit funny, but as I was studying it, it made a little bit more sense. Jesus means to pass by them, he says in verse 48. He meant to pass by them. Is he being cruel? Is he being heartless? Like, hey, see you later, guys. You're going really slow, by the way. Uh, I think what Jesus is doing there is he's trying to get into a position where they can see him well. Can you see me? This is me. It's not a, it's not a ghost because that's what they sing. They cry out. They think he's a ghost. They're terrified. And immediately, it says in verse 50, he speaks to them and listen closely to what he says. Take heart. Positive command. It is I. Um, statement of presence. Do not be afraid. Negative command. Uh, very amazing. That, that statement, it is I, it, it, it could be saying two things. It could be Jesus saying, I am here. I am with you. Stop being afraid. I am here. Uh, and as long as I am with you, I am with you the whole time. As a matter of fact, not one drop of rain has hit your head that has not been controlled by me. That is who I am. I am here. I am with you. But that also kind of feeds into the second meaning that this, uh, this statement could have, because this statement, I am here, could just as easily be translated as, as you see so often in the Gospel of John, I am. Which is, as you know, the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, his, his declaration throughout the Bible, I am, that's his personal name, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I think both of those two meanings tie together. I am here, I am present. Stop being afraid. I am with you. Focus on me. Stop being distracted. Open your blind eyes and see. Now, the disciples, I think, yeah, they were getting caught up in the excitement, and they weren't able to really see the meaning of the miracles. They, they were just 
focusing on the miracles. And now Jesus draws them away because he wants to uh, increasingly teach them about who he is and what he is going to do. And I, and I think this is instructive in your life as well. Sometimes God's good blessings and God's good benefits in a way kind of hinder you and have an ability for, uh, to, to make you stop seeing the God who gives them to you because you enjoy the benefits and the pleasures and the blessings of being God's people. Sometimes Jesus needs to kind of put you in a storm so you can remember who he is and what he is doing. So are you comfortable with this Jesus of, of compassionate control? Because he is a God of compassionate control. Are you comfortable with this God in your life? It's good news, but it's also a little bit uncomfortable and a little unsettling. And, and ultimately, what it causes you to have to do is say, I am going to trust in him by faith. This is not just some God that from a distance controls the universe and just kind of just lets things continue as they are. This is a God who superintends and controls everything in my life for my good and for his glory in compassionate control he gives you not what you came for always but what you need right in compassionate control he often gives you more than you can handle so that you can see your weakness in compassionate control he gives you sometimes more than you need so that you can learn to trust his provision more and in compassionate control He often sends you into the teeth of storms so that you will not idolize his blessings over worshiping and trusting him. That is the God you serve. That is the God you stand before every day of your life. And and if you are a believer, that is ultimately a great comfort to you, even though it is scary, even though it is terrifying at times. But if you are an unbeliever, that is a God that you stand before in judgment. That is a God who sees everything. Just like Jesus saw everything the disciples did, that is the Jesus, the judge that you stand before, a God who sees everything and controls everything. And no creature is hidden from his sight, nor can you escape his hand of judgment. that's, That's the God whom we stand before today even, and you will stand before in the future in judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this opportunity we have to open your word and learn about who you are. We pray that our hearts would be humbled and softened because of it. We would not have hard hearts like the crowds that were just in it for the excitement and for the free food, but we would be in it for you and for your glory and because we love you and we want to follow you. I pray now during small group time that we would be, we would be instructed by the by the notes and the comments of others, but we would also be um, convicted by our own sin and, and seek to live lives that are more honoring to you, even through what we discuss now. I pray this in your name. Amen.